a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. We're still in Luke. We're in chapter 7. Jesus is still ministering and teaching in the area around the Sea of Galilee, working in and around the city of Capernaum. Here it is on a map. We've seen him here before. In chapter 4, we found him teaching in the synagogue there at Capernaum, casting a demon out of a demonized man in the synagogue there. Remember that? We also learned that he healed Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's home there in Capernaum. So evidently Peter had moved to Capernaum after being raised in nearby Bethsaida. Jesus was in Capernaum when he healed the paralyzed man that was lowered into his presence through the roof. In the last part of chapter 6, Luke records some of the sayings from a sermon that Jesus preached just outside the city of Capernaum. He's still in that Sea of Galilee region. We call that the Sermon on the Plain. But now in verse 1, here in chapter 7, we learn he's come back into the city. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one that built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. <laughs> and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. <laughs> A centurion was a Roman soldier, maybe the equivalent of what we might call a captain in the army. And the word, of course, centurion comes from the same word as the word century. So the rank of a centurion would usually imply he was a commander of about 100 men. We would think it would be exactly 100 by the name, but in reality it wasn't usually exactly 100. Sometimes more than 100, sometimes fewer, but roughly 100 men. Normally, a Roman centurion stationed in any given town would be a man that almost all the residents of that town would really despise. For one thing, he was a Gentile. And you know how the Jews felt about Gentiles. The Gentiles were unclean. And for another, his presence, of course, as a Roman officer was a constant reminder of the oppressive power of the dominance of the Roman Empire over them. You know, they hated that. Didn't like to be reminded of that. And then in that particular role... He was the one responsible for making sure the people paid their taxes. It's one of the reasons the Romans put those centurions in these towns. People needed to know that the hated tax collectors were backed up by the military power of Rome. So here he was. He was a personification of the military might necessary to make sure those taxes were paid. So in general, these guys were hated. This man's different. He's what was called a God-fearer. You remember there were some Gentiles not willing to go all the way and become Jews, but they did recognize that the Jews were worshiping the true God. And these God-fearers would often recognize the power of what we call the Old Testament. They realized it was God's word. They would worship him and they would pray to the true God, even though they weren't willing to become Jews. Cornelius was an example of another centurion who was just like that. You remember that? He was a God-fearing Gentile. Peter led him to the Lord after God gave him a vision. Remember that? Acts chapter 10. Lydia was another one. A woman from Thyatira came to Christ in Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Another example is the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember him? Philip led him to the Lord, baptized him there. Remember, he's from Ethiopia. Have that account in Acts chapter 8. So these were God-fearing Gentiles, and, and they were around, and this centurion was one of them. So this centurion asked some Jewish elders to go ask Jesus for help. 
They tell Jesus, hey, this man's different. He's even built our synagogue. So in their minds, that makes him worthy. <laughs> now, the centurion didn't think that. Do you notice that? Verse 6, he doesn't see himself worthy. He said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. For one thing, he was well aware that most all the Jews would never think of entering the home of a Gentile. It would make them unclean. They just didn't do it. So the centurion is really being sensitive here. He's, he's graciously letting Jesus know. He's aware of the awkwardness of this situation. Jesus doesn't really need to come to his home at all. But even more amazingly, this centurion recognizes the authority and power of Jesus. He knows what authority means. He himself is a man under authority, and he has men under him over whom he has authority. And he recognizes Jesus' authority, including authority over sickness, and by implication, authority over creation. He seems to have a better grasp of who Jesus is than most of the Jews who are constantly crowding around Jesus. I mean, many of the Jews did see Jesus as a source of great blessing, of course, sometimes free food, <laughs> maybe some healing. And they were amazed at his teaching, even though they didn't fully understand it, of course. The Bible tells us they were astonished, they were bewildered, kind of dumbfounded, I guess. But, but this man seemed to recognize more clearly what that really meant. Jesus had authority to do what only God could do. He reminds us a little bit of Nicodemus, doesn't he? I mean, you remember John tells us about Nicodemus in John chapter 3? And Nicodemus began his conversation with Jesus by saying, We know, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. He recognized that authority too. See what I mean? So in faith, the centurion says, You don't even have to come to my home. If you're willing to heal my servant, you can do it from right where you are. I understand your authority. And Jesus marveled at his faith. And Jesus healed his servant. And once again, Jesus is demonstrating he's the light of the world. And as the light of the world, he's just pushing back the darkness. Everywhere he goes, that's what he's doing. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Naim. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Let me show you where that is. It's about a 30-mile trip from Capernaum. See it there on the map? That's not a quick and easy trip in those days. Maybe a day and a half to walk that many miles. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. We don't know for sure, but it may have looked something like this. Basically, they were carrying his body out of the town on a simple, kind of a little cot-like bed contraption just to bury it. So Jesus touched the beer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may remember Jews did not embalm their dead, and that meant they never waited very long to bury their dead. Often the dead were buried within a few hours after they had died. So, once again, Jesus is demonstrating his incredibly perfect timing. Have you picked that up? I mean, this little town of Nain is about 30 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus had just healed the centurion's servant. Normally, the fastest people would be able to travel by foot would be about 20 miles a day, and that's, that's a pretty good clip. So it's very likely Jesus is an apostle's have you thought about this? They probably left Capernaum for Naim even before this man died. <laughs> but in Jesus' perfect timing, they arrive at the very moment they're carrying his body out of the city to bury it. And once again, as Jesus did over and over and over, Jesus confronts the darkness and just drives it back. He just did that routinely. You may remember that when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, got his voice back after John was born, 
He made an extended prophecy. It's recorded in Luke chapter 1. And one of the things he prophesied was that Jesus would give light, give light to them that sit in darkness. When Jesus was a baby, you remember Simeon? He was able to hold Jesus there in the temple when they took him to for the circumcision. He prophesied that Jesus would be a light, a light to lighten even the Gentiles. Remember that? John wrote these words, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John quoted Jesus as saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, Jesus said. And these are just a few of the verses. I mean, over and over and over, we're told Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. God's made it clear in his word that it's one of his favorite metaphors to help us understand what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has done. And the metaphor is light driving away darkness. It's a powerful picture of the ministry of Jesus all the way through his ministry. Light shining in darkness. When God created Adam and Eve, you remember this, and placed them in the Garden of Eden, God put them in a place of wonderful light, the light of God himself. There was no sin there. There was no sickness there. There was no death there. Just a glorious light. And then Adam made a horrible decision. He made the decision to follow the word of the serpent over the word of God. And it was a monstrous event. It's really hard for us to appreciate how horrific it was because we've always lived in this fallen world, right? We've, we've always lived in a world where there's sin and where there's sickness and where there's death and demonic deception. But when Adam made that decision, spiritually speaking, it plunged the whole world into a deep, deep darkness. Adam yielded his authority that God had given to him over to Satan. And Satan became the little g God of this world. <laughs> and Satan set up a spiritual kingdom of darkness here on this earth. But all along, even from the very beginning, God had a plan. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. From time to time, after Adam sinned and was driven out of the garden, God would break through the darkness and men would get a glimpse of just a little bit of God's light. You remember that? I mean, like, like Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and others. You remember, God would often appear as light to Moses in the tabernacle and to lead them by night and that kind of thing. Uh, he was showing them a little bit of his light. And he kept on repeating a promise. And the promise was someday, at the right time, he would overcome and totally drive out the darkness. Meanwhile, he would use that darkness to train his kids how to be overcomers to prepare us for a future kingdom that's going to be pure light when we get to share it with him. But he's training us for that. We're not ready for it yet. God promised through Isaiah that one day it would be true that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And when Jesus came, <laughs> you remember when he first came in the world, there was a star, right? A bright, shining point of light that guided the Magi to him. That star symbolized that the light Isaiah had prophesied was already beginning to shine in the darkness. And then when Jesus began his ministry, over and over and over again, we see Jesus right here in this book of Luke, of course, in all the Gospels, acting as the light. He is the light. And he's pushing back the darkness. He's casting out the demons. He's healing the sick. He's forgiving sin. He's raising the dead. He's doing all these incredible deeds to show that the light is driving out the darkness. Eventually, of course, through his death on the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. He declared all of us who would trust him to be righteous. And on the cross, he defeated death, death itself. Death, of course, was the ultimate weapon that Satan had come in with when Adam rebelled. And the light had guaranteed that ultimately darkness is going to be driven out. It's going to be defeated completely. So while Jesus was walking on this earth during his earthly ministry, his life was the light of men. Everywhere he went, darkness receded. It was a living demonstration in one physical body, Jesus' body, that the true light was now shining. Everybody he touched experienced the light. Every time he spoke, light went out. Darkness fled. 
When he finally went to the cross, it looked briefly like the darkness had overcome the light. But of course it hadn't. This is all part of God's plan. And on Sunday, after he conquered death, the light was shining brighter than ever. He had risen from the dead. Death, Satan's greatest tool, was defeated. But even then, after his resurrection, it could only shine when Jesus was physically present at any given time. So that's why he told his followers just before he was crucified. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So on the day of Pentecost, the disciples began to understand what he meant. Now the light was shining from inside each one of them. Symbolized by the tongues of fire on their heads. Remember, lights upon their heads. And they went out from there, started sharing the light all over the Roman Empire and beyond. Now the darkness was still there, of course. But now there was some serious light beginning to shine in more places. I mean, Jesus only ministered there in Galilee and Judea. These guys are going out all over the Roman Empire. And the light's shining in a lot of different places at the same time. And ever since Pentecost, the light has been penetrating the darkness. That's why we're here, to be light. <laughs> And sometimes, some places, the light has shone brilliantly during times of great spiritual awakening and revival. Sometimes, maybe the time we're in right now, it seems to be subdued. It's kind of ebbed and flowed, hasn't it? Sometimes it shines brighter. Sometimes it seems like it's about to go out. But of course, we know it will never go out, not entirely. And one day, Jesus, the light of the world, the source of all our light, will return in brilliant glory. And the darkness will be totally overwhelmed, guys, totally removed forever. In the book of Revelation, John prophesies that after Jesus has returned and after the new heaven and the new earth have been established, he said the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Isn't it going to be glorious? It's going to be glorious. We're going to be there, guys. He says again, and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a promise, guys. It's going to happen. So way back in Luke chapter 7, we have a poor widow getting ready to bury her only son. That was a dark day for her, a major disaster. She's been overwhelmed with darkness. And as they're headed to the cemetery... And as they're headed to the cemetery, they just happen to run into Jesus, right? What was the chance of that happening? <laughs> well, you know as well as I do, it wasn't chance at all. Jesus had planned this, and his timing was perfect. So Jesus, this bright, brilliant point of light, came into contact with the darkness of death, and he just drove it out. He said to the young man, get up. <laughs> and he did. And one day he's going to say that to all of us. Get up. And we will. <laughs> but during his ministry in the first century, he showed them and us over and over and over again, he has power over darkness in all of its forms. And I think this is a good place for us to listen to a very fitting song of worship and truth by the choir and orchestra from First Baptist Church, Dallas. Listen. It's not a dream. 
Well, I guess that would be a powerful place for me just to stop, wouldn't it? But I want us to look at some more of God's word before we stop. So look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Whoa. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues, evil spirits. On many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It may seem strange to us that of all people, John the Baptist, John the Baptist would have doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Remember that? He's the one whose mother Elizabeth was a very close relative to Jesus' mother Mary. They communicated together. He's the one who had a father, Zacharias, to whom an angel appeared and revealed what John's ministry would be even before John was born. He's the one who baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend on him and heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. He's the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John saw and understood Jesus more clearly than any other human being before the resurrection of Jesus. But at this point in his life, John himself is struggling with doubts. And we have to remind ourselves, John, as awesome as he was, didn't know everything. He's just a man. I mean, he understood the Old Testament prophecies as well as anybody of his day. But even then, he couldn't quite put it all together. For example, you remember John preached that Jesus would come and gather the wheat and burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire? John expected to see the wrath of God. But Jesus didn't seem to be doing that. John couldn't understand God's timing. That was his problem. John knew the Messiah would be the one to set the captives free. Old Testament prophecies prophesied that. John was captive. <laughs> he was in prison. Very soon, he's going to have his head cut off. Jesus didn't, be, didn't seem to be setting the captives free. So there he is in prison, and he's dealing with his thoughts, and it seems just not to be very clear to him which of the Old Testament prophecies were already being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, many of them were, and why some of them were not yet being fulfilled. Evidently, John couldn't put that together. So he's wondering, did I get this right? Am I missing something here? So Jesus let John's disciples see Jesus driving back the darkness, working miracles, fulfilling prophecies. John would recognize these things as prophecies being fulfilled. He's helping John realize no, John, you're not mistaken. Jesus is certainly the one to come. When Jesus said in verse 23, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me, he uses an interesting word. The word offended is skandalizo. comes from the Greek word skandalon, skandalon. We get our word scandal. It, it's a trigger or a stick, literally and originally, that caused a trap to slam shut so it could catch the prey. And it came in time to refer to anything that caused someone to fall or trip or stumble or be trapped, of course. It's used in more than one way in the New Testament. Anything that may cause us to fall into sin would be called a scandal on. So Jesus said our hand or our eye could be a scandal on. The cross is a scandal on for many. It doesn't make sense to their way of thinking, so it trips them up, causes them to stumble because of their own defective logic. Same is true of the gospel. For many, it just doesn't compute in their brains. It sounds foolish. It serves as a scandal on. They trip over the truth. Jesus causes some people to fall because they want a different Jesus. They don't like the real one, so they stumble over the one who is the truth. For the Jews, this often meant they tripped up over the real Christ because they wanted a political Christ, a military Christ, to conquer Caesar. Today, people are tripped up over the real Jesus because sometimes, anyway, they want an imaginary Jesus who will agree with them that their sins are really not sins at all. 
Their sins are just part of who they are. Have you heard this? Of course you have. If you're living today, you've read any news, their sins are part of their identity. Maybe that they're homosexuals, it may be that they're transgenders, but they're just they just want this is who I am. And you dare not question that, and their Jesus thinks it's okay. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, of course. Others are tripped up over the real Jesus in our day because they want a Jesus who will just supernaturally give them what they want right now in this world. Maybe they want better relationships. Maybe they want a better job. Maybe they want more money. Maybe they want better mental health or physical health. Whatever it is they happen to want in this life, which means their true God is a materialistic God. But they have trouble seeing the true Jesus is really preparing his people for eternity. Stuff of this world's passing away, and he wants us to understand that. But they trip over that. It seems here that Jesus is warning of the danger of being tripped up because of having a wrong opinion of what he should be like. And, and John the Baptist is in a little bit of danger there. He needs to get it clarified because he's, he, he wants Jesus to be maybe like a lot of the other Jews did. He, he wanted Jesus to be a conquering Jesus. He wanted the end times to come right then. <laughs> G, John understood some important things about Jesus. There's no question about it. He knew he was the Lamb of God. But it's very logical that he couldn't have fully understood maybe that at that time that there were two sets of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. There are prophecies that prophesy about his first coming, which Jesus was fulfilling right there in the presence of John's messengers. And they and John would certainly have recognized that as fulfilled prophecy. So they realized, yes, yeah, this is the Messiah, all right. But there are also many prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. There are lots of prophecies like that in the Old Testament. So I think there's a warning here for John and for us not to expect Jesus to do during his first coming what he's going to do at his second coming. You know what? Sometimes I think some people who reject Christianity, they don't really understand it very well, and they'll reject Jesus. Sometimes I think they're having some of the same kind of problem. Many of them, of course, just leave Jesus out of it altogether, but when they get upset with Christians, sometimes it seems like they, they, they think Christians are proclaiming that the second coming's already come. Now, let me try to explain what I mean by that. That may sound confusing. When a Christian falls into sin, and we do fall into sin in this life, right? All of us do. And unfortunately, some of the sin we fall into is more visible and damaging than other sin. But non-Christians seem to be quick to point their fingers and shout, you hypocrite! It's as if they believe that Christians are making some claim to be sinless. It's as if they're saying that when we became Christians, we already received our sinless, immortal, incorruptible bodies. We don't claim that. We know we're weak, and we know we sin, and we have to be forgiven many, many times. But they seem to think that we're claiming to be now what we will only be after Jesus returns. So to them, any sin is an opportunity to shout, hypocrite. <laughs> That's just not what the Bible teaches. Not only that, i tell you something else I think I see the world doing today. I think they foolishly really have kind of a glimpse within themselves of what the millennial is supposed to be like, the millennial reign of Christ. And they think that they're capable of bringing in a facsimile, at least, of the millennial reign by doing all the right things now, maybe regarding the environment, or maybe by ushering in a new socialistic world order, embracing socialism and critical theory, and everything's going to be wonderful, and they're going to have something similar to the millennial reign. So, so mistaken. Yeah, so bad. And when we Christians keep pointing out, look, it's true, all of us, all people, all men, including unborn babies, are created in the image of God. Now, they reject that, of course. But it's also true at the same time that we're sinful by nature. None of us can be trusted, for example, with complete political power. We may think if we get the right guy, he'll usher in this perfect or near-perfect world order. But our founding father said, if a human government's going to be successful, it's got to be founded on biblical truth. We need a system of checks and balances. We need guaranteed freedoms to escape the horrors of tyranny because all of us are sinners, all of us. But non-Christians tend to be very blind about these things. They've created a false image of the Jesus they claim we worship or the Jesus they want to choose, and the true Jesus is a scandal to them. The true Jesus causes them to stumble. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, live in luxury, or in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John was a true prophet. In fact, he was the greatest of the prophets. And as a true prophet, listen, John had a laser-like focus on the God he served. And John could care less about what people thought about him. That just wasn't on his radar screen. He certainly was no reed shaken by the wind, and everybody knew that. People's opinion of him didn't matter. One iota to him. He didn't care what people said or thought. If they ridiculed he didn't care. He was standing firm. His focus was on God. And he certainly didn't dress to impress, did he? <laughs> he wasn't trying to look like the culture. Rough camel hair clothing, leather belt. <laughs> he couldn't care less what anybody thought. He just couldn't care less about having a lot of nice stuff in this world or nice things said about him. It's all passing away. It's nothing to him. God had given him a mission. He was single-minded by getting it done. But John was still an Old Testament man. He was the last of the prophets, but he's still one of them. He was the greatest of them. The other prophets had seen and prophesied about the Messiah, but from a great distance over many centuries. And they didn't understand a lot of what they prophesied. John was privileged to meet and introduce the Messiah. But he did not live to see Jesus crucified on the cross for our sins and raised again from the dead. And, of course, he didn't live to see any of the New Testament written. You know, he, he didn't have any of the New Testament. Like He was totally Old Testament. Now, we live in a time when the risen and ascended Jesus intercedes for us personally, when the Holy Spirit lives in us to lead us and teach us. And, and God's ultimate truth about himself and about us is fully revealed in his word, including the New Testament. So what it means is we're comparatively anyway, we're standing on higher ground than the ground on which John the Baptist stood. That's why Jesus said, essentially, all of us, millions and millions of us who are trusting Jesus, we're part of his kingdom. We're greater than John. We can see Jesus more clearly than John could because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the New Testament. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We play the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. They're playing wedding games and funeral games. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. <laughs> Nothing has changed much, has it? <laughs> when you're different, because your focus is on God's assignment for you, as John was, and of course Jesus was, people who don't get it, they call you names. They make all kinds of accusations against you. They did that to John. They did that to Jesus, of course. And they do that to all the followers of Jesus. Jesus said they're like selfish kids who ridicule other kids because they wouldn't join in the foolish games of the selfish kids. People are the same today. If we say, sorry, we're not going to play that game that you call socialism or that you call critical theory or humanism or the sexual and gender revolution, we're not as you're so fond of saying, concerned about getting on what you call the right side of history. Have you ever heard people say that? They say it on TV all that. Oh, you need to get on the right side of history. <laughs> you're eventually going to regret those games you play, and we're just not going to play them. We're going to stick to God's truth. We're going to proclaim God's truth. Well, they start ridiculing and mocking and calling us names and telling us we're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> well, we turn out to be in good company. Jesus and John the Baptist were treated the same way. Many, many other believers. John was a Nazarite. He drank no wine. He chose a very simple and strange diet. Remember that? Locusts and wild honey? 
It's easy to see why it seemed weird. <laughs> so when they decided they didn't like his message, they rolled their eyes and said, he's demonized. And that was totally false, of course, but they used it to justify their unbelief. They had to make themselves feel good because they didn't go along with John's message of repentance. Okay, Jesus came along, and he ate and drank like regular Jews of the day, but they didn't like his message either. Same message, really. He preached repent. They didn't like that. They accused him of gluttony and drunkenness. That was totally false, but they used it to justify their belief. They added another accusation. They said Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> now, that was also totally false in the sense that they meant it. What they were trying to say is Jesus, by spending time with sinners, was encouraging their sin. Or if those guys were sinning, and everybody knew they were, then Jesus must be sinning too since he was willing to spend all that time with them. I guess they could have been claiming birds of a feather flock together, you know, that kind of thing. They were totally wrong about Jesus in that sense. But it did turn out to be true, of course, that Jesus really was the best friend a tax collector and a sinner could ever have in the sense that he loved them. He knew he was their only hope. He brought salvation to them. He brought forgiveness of sin to them. So, yes, he's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus told them that, you know what? You can tell what's wise by looking at the fruit. Wisdom is justified by all her children. He was saying, you can ridicule John. You can ridicule me. But what you need to do is look at the fruit that God produced through John and the fruit that God the Father is producing through Jesus. Thousands of people came to repentance. Multitudes of people expect they experienced changed lives under the preaching of John the Baptist. Thousands of people under his preaching, got prepared for the life and message of Jesus by listening to the message of John and repenting of their sins. Changed their lives totally. And already, of course, they can see Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, teaching with a power none of them had ever experienced or even heard of before. And not long after this, of course, Jesus is going to die for their sins and conquer death and hell and their sins and the grave, and he's going to rise from the dead. Of course, the world had never before nor would ever again see the kind of fruit produced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, wisdom is justified by all her children, her fruit. And wisdom in John the Baptist, but much, much, infinitely much more through Jesus himself, was producing many, many children, lots of fruit. So let them ridicule. They're irrelevant in the long range. And I just want to emphasize it again. If we decide we're really going to follow Jesus the world will ridicule us. Some people won't have, want to have anything to do with us. They'll be like the kids, mocking and making fun of other kids. They don't understand. We need to make sure we have a thick skin, and we need to let the wisdom of God produce fruit through us, even if the world misses it completely. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So, not all the Pharisees treated Jesus like he was demonized or evil. You remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were followers of Jesus. Eventually, Paul, he was a Pharisee, remember? He became the greatest Christ follower of all. It took him a while to get it right, but he did get it right. Probably most of the Pharisees were not quite as committed as these men, but some were at least trying to figure Jesus out. It's possible some of them realized Jesus really wasn't evil like some of them tried to portray him. He just didn't fit their categories. They didn't know what to make of him. So some of them wanted to at least give him a chance to answer questions. Maybe that's why this one invited Jesus to come and eat with him. That's what Nicodemus did. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Alabaster is a fine-grained, translucent form of gypsum mineral that can be carved and shaped. Among other things, they'd use it to make these flasks, like the ones you see on the screen there. There's just a couple of examples of them. 
Sometimes the perfumed oil inside would be sealed in such a way that the contents would only come out when the flask itself was broken, so it would break the neck of that flask. Some people have assumed that this woman was Mary Magdalene, but the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. We should not jump to that conclusion. Others assume that this is the same incident that John records in John chapter 12 when Mary, the sister of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, you remember she anointed Jesus' head and feet with expensive perfume? But this is a different occasion. For one thing, this event is much earlier in Jesus' ministry. It has to be a different occasion. For another, we're told that Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee. In the account with Mary, they're in the home of Simon the leper. Probably he had been healed by Jesus and was giving a feast in his honor after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. That was very late in Jesus' ministry. In the event with Mary, Jesus obviously knew Mary. Everybody knew that they were close friends, that family. So this is different. I think the best understanding of this passage here in Luke is that this woman had already met Jesus. We're not told that, but I think we can assume that. And she had already confessed her sins to him. Seems that Jesus has already cleansed her and given her a new life. And she's looking for a way to express her love to him and her gratitude to him. So when she learned he's going to be in this home, she somehow managed to get inside. Actually, I'm told it wasn't uncommon for people to come inside and gather around the in the homes of men who might be having interesting conversations. They would let people come in just to listen to the conversation. Kind of like us watching something on TV or listening to a, an interview on a podcast or something. It's the best they could do. <laughs> if anyone had reservations about her coming in, I'm guessing her urgency and her insistence maybe helped carry the day for her. Somehow she got in. Maybe she made arrangements with one of the servants to let her in. I don't know. But I think it's likely, though, that Jesus had already changed her life forever and this is the way she's honoring him, the only way she knows how to honor him. She does have that in common with Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. They both tried to honor Jesus the same way. One writer pointed out that she may have intended to pour it on Jesus' head, but when she got there, they were already reclining at the low table, maybe kind of like the one you're looking at there on your screen, and their legs and their feet are away from the table, so it might have been really difficult to get to his head, so she just anointed him the only way she could. She anointed his feet. But she's a wonderful example for us, isn't she? she? She was determined to honor Jesus. She didn't care what people thought about her. She didn't care what the Pharisees might say about her. She knew her past was ugly. She knew at least some of these people knew about her ugly past. The Pharisee did. But she was just focused on Jesus. He had changed her life forever. And she was determined to do what she could to honor him. Wouldn't that be a good prayer for all of us? Lord, you've changed my life forever. You've forgiven my sin. You've given me eternal life. You've made me into a new creature. How can I best express my gratitude? How can I honor you like this woman did at the Pharisee's house? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Hmm, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering, <laughs> nobody said anything out loud, Jesus answering said to him, <laughs> wouldn't it be interesting to know how long it took before Jesus or anybody said anything? I mean, Jesus is the one that breaks the silence. <laughs> but this woman comes on the scene and everybody's looking at her and she begins weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. She breaks that expensive flask, pours the perfumed oil on his feet. Everybody has to be thinking, whoa, whoa, this is pretty amazing. They're dumbfounded. And that Pharisee knows who she is. And he thinks Jesus doesn't. But Jesus knows exactly who she is. Much better than the Pharisee does. And Jesus knows who the Pharisee is too. He knows what's going on in that Pharisee's heart. So Jesus is the one who breaks the silence. <laughs> and if the Pharisee doubted Jesus to be a prophet, which is what his thoughts said, told him, she's going to show him how foolish that Pharisee is. Jesus not only knows who she is, Jesus knows what's going on in the Pharisee's own mind. He answers his thoughts. Oh, yes, he's definitely a prophet. <laughs> he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. <laughs> Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? So Jesus gives him a very simple, easy to understand, beautiful, profound little story. 
highlights a very gracious, merciful, generous lender. A denarius was considered to be a day's wage for a common laborer in that day, so this would be about a year and a half's wages for the first man and about two months' wages for the second man. But actually, it's kind of difficult to really compare it to today because it's such a different economy. But the main point Jesus wants us and that Pharisee to get is the first man was forgiven a whole lot more, ten times as much as the second. So Jesus says, who do you think is going to be the most grateful? <laughs> and Simon said, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. <laughs> he's a little bit cautious here. Maybe he thinks he's walking into a trap of some kind, but no. Jesus makes it simple. And he said to him, you judge rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, we know from our perspective, the truth is Simon was just as sinful as the woman, or worse, the sin of pride and self-righteousness and legalism of the Pharisees, it was notorious. But this Pharisee didn't get it. He didn't realize how much he needed Jesus. This woman recognized how much she needed Jesus. The Pharisee doesn't think he has anything to thank Jesus for. He didn't see the big deal. She's lavishing her love and gratitude on Jesus. And the Pharisee just doesn't get it. Isn't that sad? Several years ago, it was in 2009, actually, I posted a written post to our website based on this verse. This is before I was doing a podcast, although later on I did make a podcast out of this one. But I entitled the post, Why I May Love Jesus More Than You Do. <laughs> and the title, of course, was meant to be a little provocative, you know, a little off-putting. I hoped it would get attention, and it did. Later, one of the other teachers told me that one of the students had seen the title, not read the post, but seen the title, and gone to that teacher really irritated, just sounded so arrogant and self-righteous to that student for me to say such a thing. And the other teacher said, did you, did you read what he wrote? And the student hadn't. So he said, I think you better read the whole post before you decide about that. <laughs> but one of the things I wrote was this, and I'm quoting myself here. I said, as I look back over my life, I feel a great deal of shame. I've been guilty of many highly embarrassing sins. I choose not to go into detail here. I always had a bit of a problem with the guys who seem to wear the sins of their past as a kind of badge of honor. But God and I certainly know all about them. And when I think about how much he's forgiven me, I marvel. How could I not love him who's forgiven me so much? End quote. And of course, the point I was trying to make was, I know about my sins, and they're many and awful. I have no idea about your sins. But when I think about how much sin he's forgiven me, I have to believe he's had to forgive me more often and a more ugly stuff that he's had to forgive you. So according to this parable, it makes sense that I would love him more than you do. <laughs> Jesus had this problem over and over and over again with the Pharisees. Their big problem was their pride and self-righteousness. They thought they were really good people. They thought their lives were really pleasing to God, just as they were. They didn't think they needed forgiveness. They had no appreciation for the incredible grace of God that can be lavished on us, could have been lavished on them when we just recognize our sin and realize how horrible it is and confess it to him. They just couldn't grasp the overflowing love of a woman like this or anyone else whose sins have been forgiven. Hopefully we can. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus is announcing publicly what I think the woman probably already knew from a previous encounter with him. These people knew she was a sinner. Now they know she's been forgiven. And when we realize, like she did, just how amazing it is that Jesus has loved us and forgiven us in spite of all the awful and shameful sin we're all guilty of committing, we will do just what she did. We'll find ways of lavishing honor and our love and our gratitude on Jesus. So why don't we just pray and ask him how we can do that right now.
Father, thank you for this chapter that you caused Luke to write in your word. So good. It's so good, so powerful, so much truth here, Lord. Thank you that the light was shining brightly in the darkness and driving the darkness away and continues to do that through us. Thank you for the day that's coming when all the darkness will be banished and we'll be living in that kingdom of light with you and new glorified bodies and we won't be sinning anymore, Lord. We're excited about that. We're looking forward. We know, Lord, we're in a preparation time right now and we realize we may have to go through some difficult times and some dark times, but I pray that the light in us would shine and that others would see the light and be drawn to you, the source of the light, and give you glory. Lord, thank you for the amazing testimony of this woman who was such a sinner and knew it. Everybody else knew it too. And confessed it and received Jesus' forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation. Thank you for her example. Thank you for the way she found a beautiful way that you caused to be recorded in your word to honor Jesus. Lord, you've forgiven us so much. We've sinned so much, and you've forgiven us of so many ugly, shameful things. It's amazing, all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So, Lord, help us, as she did, to find ways to bring you honor and glory and praise and thanksgiving and to show our love. Help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.